Thank you, Jane. My name is Bob Lamb, alcoholic. Glad to be here, even if as a substitute. <laughs> I told somebody a story about that, about being a substitute, and they said, why don't you tell it from the podium? And then I thought, maybe I shouldn't, but maybe I will. <laughs> Seems this two couple, these two couples are going to go to dinner on Friday night. And one guy said, well, we'll come by and pick you up, and then we'll go to eat. So the guy who's going to do the picking up picked up the other couple, and they get in the car, and he said, where's your wife? He says, she's at work, and we have to stop and pick her up. She got detained. So it's no big deal. Pull up in front of this brothel. He leaned over, and he says, I didn't know she's a prostitute. He said, she isn't. She's just a substitute on Friday night. <laughs> Now you know how I feel. <laughs> Thanks, Carol. <laughs> I'm what this book says is a real alcoholic. In fact, I'm one of those bar drinking drunks. Are there any bar drinkers here tonight? <laughs> Thank God. I mean, I don't know where the rest of you did your thing, but I'll tell you this. If you didn't get some bar time in, you missed a lot of fun. <laughs> I loved everything about those joints, you know? I loved everything that goes on in there. I like the smell in there. I like them stools you can spin around on. I like the mirrors that they have in them places. You know, Dave... And I could go out here on Torrance Boulevard tomorrow, open up a joint without a mirror. Fact of life, we go broke in two weeks. Yeah. Three things you have to have in this country in order to operate a bar. One, you've got to have the booze. Second, you've got to have a license to sell it. And third, you've got to have a mirror. Or you will not make it in the bar business. That mirror, incidentally, is not there for social drinkers. Bars cannot survive on social drinkers. They depend on people who drink in volume. And you and I are the volume drinkers of this world. Social drinkers do weird stuff in bars. You bar drinkers know what I'm talking about. They come in there, they have a couple drinky poos, you know. And then they start saying weird off the wall kind of crap like, Ooh, I'm getting dizzy, I'm going home. Going home? <laughs> People like you and I, we sit there all day. And we have to have something to entertain ourselves, and it's usually our own image. That's the mirror. <laughs> yeah, we sit there all day staring in the mirror, <laughs> figuring things out, you know. I like those jukeboxes they have in them joints. You know the ones that play Born to Lose all day. I even got to like the men's John in them places. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, we used to have a guy around here by the name of Norm Alpe, who, in my opinion, was the greatest speaker Alcoholics Anonymous ever had, ever will have. And he was, and he was a fire-drinking drunk, and the first time I heard him, he was up at one of these podiums, and he talked fast. I mean, he's the only man up till tonight that could give a one-hour talk in 32 minutes, you know. <laughs> 
God rest his soul. And he's up there and ranting and raving, and all of a sudden, he said something weird. He said he got to be a bathroom slider in the men's can. <laughs> and right away, one of the bananas fell out of my ears. And I thought, what's this clown talking about, you know? I mean, I thought I'd done it all by the time I get to Alcoholics Anonymous. And here's this guy talking about something completely foreign to me. I don't know what in the world he's talking about. And he went on to explain that bathroom sliders in the men's john, I think in the ladies too, where they have them pay toilets, good, keen, smart alcoholics slide under the door <laughs> to avoid paying and save that money for drinking whiskey. And right away I thought, by God, why didn't I think of that? I bet you there's a couple thinking that right now. Then he went on to explain that whenever he got done doing what he was doing in there, he'd slide back out. <laughs> Never realizing, of course, that once you're in there, you can turn the handle and walk out. You know? <laughs> and anybody that thinks like that is a friend of mine. And so I'm eternally grateful to the Norm Alpies and Alcoholics Anonymous and the Chuck Chamberlains and the Jimmy Ryans and... Eddie Regans, who said things from podiums like this to drunks like me, or I would not be here. I would not be here. And the reason that is, I mean, they made sense to me. They made sense to me. And I still can't believe to this day that I believe them. I don't understand that. Because I'm a phony, a cheat, a liar. I tell the truth about nothing. And I, you know, I don't know how in the world I believe that they were, that what they were saying from these podiums was the truth, you know. But I believed it wholeheartedly. And it is my nature to believe anybody. I, they're all phonies like me, and I don't believe nobody. And I can't understand to this day that, yes, I, I, I thought to myself, my God, there's another one just like me. And that's what this is all about. Bottom line, that's what this is all about. And so I am eternally grateful for the people who were here before me, who, who said things like that from podiums like this to people like me. And so I, I just can't tell you how incredibly proud I am to be a, a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and sit amongst you and, and converse with you and count many of you as friends. And, and it's incredible. I. Uh, I guess it's important that I, I tell you a few things. Um, you know, I when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, are there any? I know there's a couple Texans in the room today. Raise their hands. A couple Texans. Yeah. The reason I do that is when you talk in Texas, check on them. Check them with them. It's right. If you, in the first five minutes of your talk, you don't tell them your sobriety date, they automatically assume you don't have one. Right? And so, if you get the record stated for the, for the sake of the Texans in the room, my sobriety date is the 13th of January, 1964. Wow. And I want you new people to know that I didn't come here 38 and a half years ago to be 38 and a half years sober. I, I came here to get all those people off my back, you know? <laughs> them bill collectors and that woman and those kids and that damn dog and the, and the IRS, you know? If they'd all just get off of my back, everything would be all right. And, uh, and so, I, you know, I'm getting up in years now and uh, I get to thinking about things and 
how this thing all transpired in my life and and there's some people in and then we have these people the medical profession in AA today a lot of people in the medical profession and, and in and out of AA and, and they, there's two schools that's not there they, there's some of them who thinks this thing is hereditary and then there's that say no it isn't hereditary but I don't know I, I can just tell you this my great grandfather was an alcoholic my grandfather was an alcoholic my dad and his two brothers are alcoholics my oldest brother and I are alcoholics and that would almost say maybe it's hereditary <laughs> but then the thing that throws a monkey wrench in the whole thing is my middle brother he's a social drinker now how can that be and I watch him like a hawk <laughs> And at least once a year, we get together at our house in the desert, and he flies down from San Francisco with his wife, and we have a, like a mini family reunion. And he likes to drink old fits on the rocks. And before he comes, I always make sure there's a bottle up in the cupboard. And he comes to my house, and he heads for the cupboard. And he first thing he does is he gets a big glass, which is a tip off to me right away. And you know what he does? He fills it full of ice. Then he gets that bottle of whiskey out of my out of my cupboard, opens it up, starts spritzing it around like this. You know, big deal. <laughs> then he takes that glass of whiskey, goes in my living room, sits down on my couch, takes that glass of whiskey, puts it on my end table, picks up a book and starts to read. <laughs> I have to leave the room. I, I, I can't stand that. And to make matters worse, he sits there for three hours and sips and reads. Sip. I have to at last leave the house. I just go bananas. I tell him, for God's sake, man, drink it. I don't understand and you don't understand how people can sip whiskey or anything. Most alcoholics don't sip nothing. We don't sip water. <laughs> down. We're gulpers. We don't sip nothing. We don't sip soda pop. <laughs> down. How anybody can sit there for three hours and sip on a glass of whiskey just is beyond my I can't, my comprehension, I don't understand that. Conversely, he doesn't understand how I make a pig of myself when I drink whiskey. And uh, once in a while, in my drinking days, I would get into some financial problems. I'm sure that never happened to anybody here. But <laughs> once in a while, I would have to call on him and say, could you help me out? And invariably, he would send me money and get get this big problem resolved in my life. Three weeks after he sends me the money, he calls again, like normsies do. And they say weird things to alcoholics, like, I heard you're drinking again. I said, doesn't everybody? You know, what's the big deal? And then my second thought is, how the hell does he know he's in San Francisco? And now I've got that figured out. My mother tells him. 
she lives in Wisconsin and she can smell whiskey on me 2,000 miles away. And she called him and said, Bob's drinking again. And so that's how that went. And, and then I get to thinking a little bit further in my life and, and uh, how it all started and why I'm an alcoholic and he isn't, you know. And why him and not me? And, and stuff like that. And I've come up with these conclusions. I don't know how sound they are, but they're my conclusions, and I'm going to be stuck with them, you know? <laughs> I've come to this conclusion that the day I was born, I had two strikes against me right out of the chute, you know? First of all, I was born in this little town in Wisconsin, and you all know how little towns are. Everybody knows everybody's business. And sometimes that's good, and sometimes that's bad. And in my case, it was always bad, it seemed. And the second strike I had against me was my dad was assistant chief of police in that damn town. <laughs> and he was six foot four, weighed 280 pounds, wore a uniform, carried a gun, scared the living bejesus out of you. And for the first 15 years of my life, I did everything that that turkey told me to do, just out of fear. Because I knew deep down inside, if he ever hit me, he'd kill me. I mean, he was a big moose and a tough cop, and I was scared to death of him. I mean, little things. If he told me to run to the store, I literally ran to the store. I mean, I didn't slow down when I got out of sight or something, either. And I'd run all the way back, too. If he told me to carry out the trash, I carried out everything that even looked like trash. You know? <laughs> he told me to rake the leaves, I even raked the neighbor's leaves, you know? And in Wisconsin, they have a lot of snow. And he taught me very early in life, if five flakes of snow fall on our sidewalk, it's my job to take it off there. And I did it religiously out of fear, like I say, until this magical thing happens to all human beings. Everybody here, everybody out there. About the age of 15, something happens to human beings. Medical science can't explain it. You know it happened to you, and I know it happened to me. If you don't believe me, go out here tonight, find a 15-year-old. <laughs> Ask him or her a question on any subject in the world, and you know what? They'll tell you. <laughs> the smartest thing walking the face of the earth right this minute is a 15-year-old in their, in their humble opinion. And you were no different, and I was no different. And like I say, I don't know how it happened to you, but I have this concept, how it happened to me. I have this idea that it came floating on a cloud or something in my bedroom at night and went, kaboom! And no bells or whistles went off, but the next morning I knew something was different, you know? I got up that morning, I can remember like it was yesterday, got, up, got dressed, went downstairs, got dressed, had, I mean, had, got dressed, went downstairs, had breakfast. Finished my breakfast, headed off to school, no big deal, you know? Came home from school at noon for lunch, and it was snowing, and I know my job, right? But this thing, it happened in the night. All of a sudden, I said to myself, screw it, I just won't do it no more. <laughs> I don't know about you, but my logic and reasoning was, what will the neighbors say? A genius out there shoveling snow, you know, manual labor. All of a sudden, it's beneath my station in life, I just won't do it. And I took that snow shovel and set it up against the house and walked in and said, the heck with it, I, I don't care what he does, I just won't do it no more. And I went in the kitchen, sat down, and started to eat my lunch. And then I heard the squad car pull up in front, and I heard the car door slam, 
Then I heard the shovel out there on the sidewalk, and I said to myself, it's about time he does something around here. <laughs> Did you ever have the feeling like you got to do it all? That's the way I felt. And he came in the house all out of breath because he wasn't used to that manual labor. I'd been doing it all. Took off that uniform hat and that big mackinaw they wear in the winter and that Sam Brown belted at 45. Laid it on the dining room table like he did every day. Came in the kitchen, sat down at the kitchen table right across from me. And then he threw me a curve. He didn't say a word. And if you've just been endowed with the smarts, that will drive you nuts. I mean, I'm just waiting for him to say something. I've been saving it up for 15 years. And he didn't say a word. And I finished my lunch ahead of him and I had to go back to school. I can remember this like it happened yesterday. Got up, walked around the kitchen table, had to go past him, out through the dining room, through the living room, out the front door, back to school. I can't explain this neither, but I'm sure you understand it. I just knew deep down inside. I could not let a situation like this go by without saying something. <laughs> and I stopped right in front of him, looked him right in the eye, reached down inside and got one of them pearls of wisdom I'd just been endowed with, right? <laughs> looked him right in the eye, said the smartest thing I could think of. I said, is the snow heavy today? <laughs> Big mistake. He didn't say a word again. He just kind of turned in the chair and came all the way from right field with a flat of the hand, direct hit. And I took off in the air. <laughs> Up against the dining room windows. And when I came to, I developed another bad attitude. I said to myself and only to myself, nobody can hit me like that and get away with it. I'll get even with him by God if it kills me. And in the quiet of my room at night, I used to plan his demise. Now, I understand today that's not proper thinking for a 15-year-old to be planning his father's demise. But that's the way it really was. I mean, instantly, I hated his guts. And the, the things that I'm, this situation and a few others about to tell you helped formulate my attitude towards people, places, and things. And by the time I got to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, my attitude towards people, places, and things was really messed up. But this slap on the head that was one of it started it all. About a, about a year after that incident, another big deal happened. Another cold winter day in Wisconsin. Snow piled up as high as this podium. Three of my buddies and I come home from school at four o'clock in the afternoon, walking down the street to get to the corner to go down to my house. And there, in the, passed out in the snowbank, is my dad, dead drunk, in full uniform. And these three guys, three buddies, started to tease me about my drunk dad, the drunk cop. And we went to Fifth City right there, and I won. But I'll never forget the feelings and emotions I had that day realized then and there that he had disgraced that uniform he wore, disgraced that badge he wore, and lost the faith and trust of that community that he had pledged his life to protect and to serve. Big deal. About nine months after that big deal, another traumatic thing happened. At the age of 47, he died of chronic alcoholism. Didn't say that on his death certificate, incidentally. It said heart disease. And I found out another fact of life, that doctors, 
We are doctors. Lie on death certificates to certain people in certain towns, and they're still doing it today. Fact of life. About a, a year after that incident, another traumatic thing happened to me. I was going with this gal. I mean, when I say we were going together, we started out in kindergarten together. Same kindergarten, same grade school, same high school, same Sunday school, same church. And right out of high school, we got married. It was a beautiful event. Crossed white shotguns, everything. <laughs> and she never liked me to say that anyhow. And uh, on the 12th of January, we were, uh, 1948, we were married. And you all know, on the 23rd of December, on the 23rd of November, 19, uh, 2001, she was diagnosed with cancer. And on December 23rd, 2001, God came and took her from me. And it's tough. We were just ready to celebrate 54 years of marriage. And the tickets already to take her to Maui for her birthday. And it didn't work out. And I miss her. God, I miss her. I hate them damn dishes. <laughs> really? I used to sit in my office and think, I wonder what the hell she does at home all day long. <laughs> I'm beginning to find out. And I don't like the laundry either. The other day I tried pressing my pants and I got three creases in them. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Three creases in the front. I got a find a solution to that pretty quick. <laughs> People are starting to look at me kind of funny. And so, but by the grace of God, the people of Alcoholics Anonymous all over this country and Canada, they keep calling just to say, hi Bob, how are you doing? And it really helps. It really helps. To know somebody else really gives a damn. And so I have to go on. And like all women after we got married, she started to demand things like <laughs> furniture to sit on it. <laughs> Curtains on the windows and all that stuff. And I don't have any money. And I go down and see my dad's buddy, the chief of police, and told the chief, you know, she wants all this stuff. And I don't have any money. And he said, uh, go up to the sheriff's department tomorrow. I think they need help. And any of you who come from a small town, you know the process. One phone call is all it took. Walked into the sheriff's department the next morning, he pinned a gold badge on me. And I got to be a drunk cop, just like my dad. And time doesn't permit me to tell you what can happen to a drunk cop, except stir up some old resentments. And God knows you probably don't need any more, especially when it comes to cops. <laughs> Bunch of cop haters right over there. 
I can spot them a mile away. In the back row there, too. But let me tell you something. If I had my choice this very minute, to be anything in this world I could be this very minute, it'd still be a cop. I loved every minute of it. I loved all the excitement, the camaraderie, and everything else of being a cop. And I don't know about you, but... People who come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't know, but I found out a few things that, you know that 99%, 99 out of 100 human beings have one thing in their life that's the single most important thing in their life. And in 99 out of 100 cases, that one single, single thing is another human being. Isn't it incredible? It's another human being. It's a wife, a husband, a lover, a child, a parent, a grandparent, aunts, uncles, somebody is the single most important thing in 99 out of 100 human beings, except cops. And if there's any cops here tonight, don't ask me, ask them. They all have one thing that's above all human things. It's a damn badge. And everybody that's ever carried one will tell you the same thing I'm about to tell you. I'd have done anything short of murder to keep that damn badge, except stay away from one drink of whiskey. And this woman, I mean, she, she didn't know anything about alcoholism, you know. She, she comes from one of them normancy families, whatever that is. I mean, they did weird stuff, I thought. They go to church on Sundays and picnics in the park and walks in the woods. <laughs> I don't know anything about that stuff. And uh, she didn't know anything about alcoholism. She didn't know anything about Al-Anon, Alateen, Al- Alcoholics Anonymous, Alatop, none of that stuff. I mean, she, she's, she turned out to be a black belt Alanon. But she was, she, prior to coming to Alcohol, Alanon, even when we first got married, she, she, she had all the makings of a good Alanon, you know. I can remember distinctly one, one Saturday, it was football season, and I'm down at the local watering hole with all the guys watching the football game, right? That's what guys do, right? And she's home ironing. And she's boiling. She's madder than a wethead. And I come in from the game, weaving all over the place, looking kind of funny. And she just happened to be standing there ironing her brow when I walked in the door. And I am weaving back and forth, and I say, what do you want to iron that for? You ain't got nothing to put in. <laughs> now, this is why she was ready for Al-Anon. You know what she said? She looked, stopped ironing, looked me right in the eye, and said, I iron your shorts, don't I? So she was ready for Alan, and I'll tell you that. <laughs> and I don't want any newcomers to think I got a bunch of warrants in my pocket here, and you start heading for the door. So. And they took that badge away from me a long time ago, and it was probably next to the night she died. It was probably one of the worst nights of my life. It, it all came down, you know. One night, a bunch of cops and our wives going to have a party. And I don't think there's anything different, incidentally, between a cop's party and a civilian party. Except maybe at the cop's party, the booze is all free. 
And that's where drunks like me really shine. I don't know about any of you, but I just love free booze parties. <laughs> and I'm not the kind of guy at a free booze party sitting over there in the corner sipping on drinks with a little pinky sticking out, you know. I'm back there in the kitchen where the supply is. <laughs> with both hands, right? Getting all I can get while the getting's good in case they run out, you know. And I don't know how long we were at that meeting. Oh, I mean at that party. And she sidled up next to me in the kitchen. Says, we're leaving. I said, what are you talking about, woman? We just got here. At least it seemed like that to me. I don't know about you, but every booze party I've ever been at in my life, it seems to me there's a magic takes place in the room. And I'm part of the magic, and I'm not leaving. And she looked at me with them cold Al-Anon eyes and says, we're leaving. Now, I don't know to this day how she got the keys, because I'm like you, you know. My car, I drive. I'm sure nobody here ever said that. And we left, and all the way home, she started bad-mouthing me again about my drinking. This whole thing, incidentally, is in the book. It talks about this whole scenario. Read the book. It says that you and I, who are real alcoholics, go through life with blinders on us, like they put on horses, and we don't see anything that way, and we don't see anything that way. It's our way or no way. We're very selfish individuals. And she's yakking away at me, and we, every alcoholic I know, when people are telling us these god-awful truths that we don't want to hear, we have a switch here. Shuts it all off. I mean, it don't even hit the eardrum. It just, choo, right over the top. And I can't explain to this day, something happened that night on the way home. Maybe the switch went back on, maybe the blinders fell off, but the first time in our married life, I started, hear some of the, started to hear some of this heavy-duty stuff she's laying on me. I mean, she's starting to say things to me like, how oh, my drinking is affecting our entire life, she said. I said, now what are you talking about? She said, first of all, it's affecting our social life. I said, yeah, how's that? She said, we just had to leave that party back there for one reason and one reason only. I said, yeah, what's that? She said, because of your dirty, filthy mouth. I'm sure nobody here believes that. <laughs> And then she said, not only that, it's affecting every other aspect of our life. And I said, now what are you talking about? She said, it's affecting our home life, our family life, our kids' lives, our financial life, our sex life. Everything about us is being affected by my drinking. Now I'm certain she flipped her lid or something. And we got in the house and she would not shut up. And I reached for the only thing I know would shut her up, a 38. I said, woman, I've heard all I'm ever going to hear from you about my drinking. I'm going to blow your damn brains out. And she took off like a deer. Phew! Out the front door of that house, six blocks down the street to the only place she knew she could get help, right? The sheriff's office that I work at. And I'd have got her, too. She just slowed down. And you'd have a different speaker here tonight, too. I'd probably up to, be up there walking the yard tonight and talking to talk and walking to walk. And so I'm eternally grateful to something. Call it any damn thing you want to. But I'm eternally grateful right this second that I didn't pull that trigger that night. And I came out of that blackout standing in the middle of the sheriff's office at 3 o'clock in the morning with a 38 in my hand. Going to kill somebody. And all the guys are coming off the late shift and they're standing around the squad room. And they're all looking at me kind of funny. You know how your family and loved ones and 
fellow workers and everybody look at you when you're drunken and a skunk? You know, they all look at you really funny. I mean, they look down there kind of second-class citizen or something. I can't even describe it. But I'll tell you another fact of life. If you don't know what I'm talking about right this second, you do not belong here. Those people near and dear to us really look at us funny when we're drunker than a skunk. And they're all looking at me kind of funny. And then the boss, the elected sheriff of that county, heard the ruckus in the squad room. And he came down in the squad room. And he looked at those guys coming off the late shift, and then he looked at me. And he, incidentally, is the only reason I'm in that department, because he's a big buddy of my dad. And that's how the whole thing happened, if the truth was to be known. It just was an agreement, and that was it. And he walked up in front of me, looked me right in the eye, and we were really close. He is a great guy. I love him to this day. He looked me in the eye, says, Bob, hand it over, the badge and the gun. And he took away the badge, the gun, and the uniform. At the, at the age of 31, I had to do the most adult, mature thing I could think of. I ran away from home. <laughs> if there's any runners here tonight, I don't want to talk to you outside after the meeting. Because you know what? No matter where I go in this country or any other country, these rooms are full of runners. You know that? Running to something, running from something. And every runner who's ever come to Alcoholics Anonymous, including me, we all forgot one thing and we all forgot the same identical thing. And that is when you're running, no matter where you're running, whether you're running to something or running from something, we all forgot the same thing. We all had to bring, I had to bring me along. And you had to bring you along. And you is the problem and me is the problem. And you can't make this thing alone and I can't make this thing alone. But together we can make it. And that's the miracle it talks about in this book. One drunk talking to another and it works. It works to the tune of over two million sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's good enough for me, man. That's good enough for me. And I consider myself a very fortunate member of this fellowship because over the years, I've had the privilege, and I mean a privilege, to eyeball 50% of them properly. Eyeball to eyeball. And I believe that's an earned privilege. It is not given. You earn the right to do this and suit up and show up and do what's asked of you in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope and pray before they throw dirt in my face, I'll get to meet them all. Because I'll tell you another fact of life. No matter where I've been in this country or any other country, some of the finest people I've ever met in my life, ever met in my life, all turn out to be sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, ain't that a kick? Coming from where you and I have come from, some of the finest people I've ever met in my life turn out to be sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, that, and for that, I'm eternally grateful. For eternally grateful. I guess it's important I tell you about my last drunk, and we got to get out of here. I've been here long enough to say there was an authority. If you can't remember your last drunk, you probably haven't had it yet. But I don't know about any of you, but I never want to forget, as long as I live, what was going on in my life the day I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous in utter desperation. And if you're new here today, I hope you're as desperate about this deal as you've been about anything in your life. Because I believe the more desperate you are about this deal, the better shot you got at making this thing. My last drink, like I say, was no big deal. I didn't sit around and plan it for three weeks or something. It just happened, you know? It was a Friday night, the 27th of December, 1963. Just finished eating dinner. Made the big announcement to that woman and those kids. 
Told him I'm going out and have a couple beers with the guys. I'll be back in two hours. And like a good alimony, she started that yak, 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 yak. And I said, listen, woman, I want to tell you something for the last time. I just put in 40 for a bunch of ingrates around here. And I'm going out and commiserate with my friends, and I'll be back in two hours. Now knock it off. And like I said, it was the 27th of December, 1963, at about 7 in the evening. And I got back on the 13th of January, 1964. <laughs> Can't tell you to this day where the hell I was. I know on the 27th of December, 1963, at about 7.30, I went to my favorite watering hole, a place called the Prelude. Now, that, isn't that a nice name for a dump? The Prelude. I mean, it has the connotation you're only going to be there for a little bit, you know? The Prelude on Lancashire Boulevard in North Hollywood, which really isn't a heck of a lot to shoot for. It was one of those padded sewers I'd started to frequent. You bar drinkers know what I'm talking about. I mean, they didn't even have a front door there, you know. Just curtains hanging there. You, know. you bet in one, huh? And I really, really went, went to meet these lifelong drinking buddies of mine who I just met two weeks ago. And sure enough, they were all there. And we started doing the things that real drunks do in bars. It's Friday night, you know what they're doing. All over this country, the same identical thing. They're all standing around in watering holes, talking in millions and spending in dimes. Trying to impress people we don't know with money we don't have. If you're a smart drunk like me, you're trying to put the make on some dolly down there at the end of the bar and impress the heck out of her. And you know what? In this group of six guys I went to meet, fact of life, there wasn't one common laborer in the whole bunch. We were all brain surgeons and jet pilots and astronauts and doctors and lawyers and devout liars. And in this group of six guys was a new guy. His name was Pete. And Pete was one of those intellectual giants. You meet in bars. You bar drinkers again know who I'm talking about. That's the guy or gal who sits down there at the end of the bar and has the answer to every living subject in the world. And they drive people like you and I nuts, you know. And that was Pete. I mean, if you had marital problems, and I had marital problems, he had the answers. If you had legal problems, he had the answers. If you had medical problems, he had the answers. If you had engineering problems, he had the answers. I thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know? I thought, how can one guy know so much about so many things? And he continued that drunk with us, and thank God he did, because as it turned out, Pete was really quite a guy. He was the one guy in the group who it seemed was always well enough to make the run for the rest of us who were too sick to make the run. Pete could find a jug on election day in a dry state. You know one of them great guys. And besides that, he had A-negative blood, and I stuck pretty close to him. Just lost half the room. You know how I know that? No matter where I go in this country or any country, by the time I hit the parking lot where my car is, three people at least are going to tap me on the shoulder, ask me the same damn question the world over. They all say, hey man, what do you mean by that A-negative blood crap? And just so we don't plug up the parking lot here tonight, I'll tell you ahead of time. First of all, if you have A-negative blood, it's rare blood. And second of all, when you're selling it to buy wine, you get more for A-negative than any other kind of blood. So I stuck close to Pete. I mean, I might have been born at night, but not last night. 
And then I can't tell you the series of events that took place. We were living in these abandoned cars, one of which was mine. You laughed, you know? You know how your car gets to be an abandoned car? That's kind of a work of art. The tires are usually flat, the battery's dead, it's out of gas, and it's usually six months behind in payments. Then legally it's an abandoned car. It also got to be our living room, our kitchen, our bedroom, and our bathroom. Got a little salty in there. And one of those mornings, I can't tell you which one, we all came to and Pete didn't. And he had swallowed his tongue that night in a convulsion. And he was deader than a doornail. And I got fighting mad at everything and everybody. And God, if there is a God. Because my great intellect and better judgment took over again, which incidentally got you here and me here. Our great intellect and intellect better judgment takes over. My great intellect and better judgment said, you know, if there's a God, why would he let a good guy like Pete go, who knows everything there is to know about everything, and let me stay? And then I can't tell you the series of events that happened after Pete was gone. But I'll never for want to forget this next incident as long as I live. Early morning on the 13th of January, 1964, some phenomena start taking place. I don't even know what the hell a phenomena is. But some weird stuff started happening. Because all of a sudden, out of that radio came the most beautiful music I ever heard in my life. Yeah. It was like the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra was in the car with us. And I know today it was hallucinations because the battery was dead. <laughs> Yeah, but it, I remember like it was yesterday. And it was the most beautiful music I ever heard. And I thought to myself, man, this is how it must be when you die. And then I got scared. Have you ever been real scared? I thought cops aren't supposed to get scared. But I got real scared. And for the first time in my adult life, I got down on my knees in that sewer. Cried out to a God I was absolutely certain did not exist. And if he did exist, he don't want anything to do with a drunk like me. But I said the most honest, sincere prayer I've ever uttered in my life. I said, God, if there be a God, the only prayer I know is help me. And through a series of unexplained happenings, which Chuck used to refer to as unexplained happenings or miracles, and through this unexplained happenings, I got to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous through another unusual thing. That morning, my wife worked at Warner Brothers, and she was in the, in the secretary pool that morning. And I had been gone about 18 days, and she had made up her mind that week to raffle some money, and this was the end. She was leaving, and she had a spot picked out to move to, and this was the end of our marriage. And she's sitting at the desk at Warner Brothers and crying. And this great big tall guy comes walking through the secretary pool. His name was Matt. And uh, he said to her, you better do that in my office. And she went in his office, and he said, not even, let it all hang out. And for the first time in her career at the studios, she told about this drunk that she did to us. And he's been gone all this while, and she's ready to leave. And he says, why don't you have him try Alcoholics Anonymous? And she said, how do you know? He says, because I are one. And that was the first time in his 37 years in the, with the studios, he broke his anonymity that morning to help one sick alcoholic, me. And uh, he was just 
my finest man, one of the finest members of Alcoholics Anonymous, like I said, I've met in my life. And he was a great man. And I got to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that night. And it hasn't been necessary since to go out there be a phony, a cheat, a liar, and a common drunk. And if I get nothing else out of this deal, that mere fact ought to last me a lifetime. I don't know why you're here, but that's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. And at that time, incidentally, in the state of California, there wasn't one hospital in this entire state would admit anybody for chronic alcoholism. Not one. And so we've come a long ways. And I got directed to one of them AA clubhouses, and I'm not here to promote them either. Because some of them I've seen in this country and other countries are dens of iniquity. Yeah. You should see some of the sewers I've seen. But the one I went to was not, is not, will not be, as long as I got anything to do with it. And I walked in that club that morning, and there were no meetings going on. Just two old goats sitting over there in the corner, playing cribbage. And I walked in the clubhouse, like through that door, and they're sitting over there. And I walked in the door, and one of them poked the other one, and they stopped playing cribbage, and he poked the other one and pointed at me, and he said, we better do something with that one, or he's going to start jackknifing around the room here, you know. I mean, I wasn't nervous, just quick, you know. And they applied the only therapy they knew at that time. Yeah, did you hear that? The only therapy they knew at that time. They gave me a bucket of paint and a paintbrush, figuring that I could paint faster than anybody else can play. <laughs> and I painted that damn clubhouse, and I can't tell you to this day how long I've been, don't know. But I'll never forget the day I finished. It was a bright Saturday morning. Put away the buckets and the brushes and cleaned everything up just perfect, because we're perfectionists too, you know. And then I found out the truth that one of them cribbage players had been a painter all his life. <laughs> and that old thinking came back that fast. Why me, God? Why wasn't he up there painting? And I'll fix their clocks. I'll get drunk at every damn one of these phonies. And I headed out the back door of that clubhouse, boundly determined to quit Alcoholics Anonymous, get drunk at every damn one of you. And then God, as I understand God, had to perform another miracle, and he had to do it damn fast because I was gone. And you know what? I reached for that push bar like they have on those doors. I reached for that push bar in the back door of that clubhouse, and the door opened up ahead of me. And there's, it's on the second story, and there's a little landing out there, and there's this clown standing on the landing there. And he has a smile from ear to ear, and he says, Hi! <laughs> and I said, Shove it! <laughs> he says, Why do you say that to me? I don't even know you. I said, Shove it anyhow. He said, Come here, I want to talk to you. Brought me back to the meeting hall, set me down in them Henroid chairs. Not these nice padded ones, them cold metal ones. <laughs> and I told him about them gray-haired goats, and he made me paint that club, and I'm going to get drunk at every damn one of them. And he ended up being my sponsor. And he said, if I'm going to be your sponsor, three things are going to happen to you, man. One, you're going to go to meetings. Two, you're going to study that book. And three, for the first time in your adult life, you're going to follow instructions. I thought, how the hell does he know that? <laughs> and they say at that time there were 700 meetings a week in the greater Los Angeles area. And today there's 2,400 a week. And we made them all. Yeah, I mean, it was meetings, meetings, every night. And newcomers, it's going to happen to you because it's happened to every one of us, so don't feel bad about it. You're going to say to your wife, your husband, your buddy, your girlfriend, meetings, meetings every night. Tonight I'm not going. And that night he came by early. 
put me in the car and started down the freeway. I said, where are we going tonight? He said, he was a crusty old bugger anyhow. He says, we're going to the hole in the ground. I thought, oh my God, now they're going to bury me. <laughs> For those of you who don't know where the hole in the ground is, it's underneath the E-Bell Club in Huntington Park, California. Started by a guy by the name of Tex Adams, who'd been sober since Lincoln had the measles. <laughs> Thank God for people like Tex who started places like that for drunks like me. And he told me I had to study this book. He would not let up. I mean, he'd get that book in his hand and get me in the corner and start pounding on his book and start saying weird stuff to me like between page 1 and 164 of this book is how drunks like him and millions of others before him had found a way of not to die from chronic alcoholism. Then he'd look at me and say, if you don't want to do it, then get the hell away from me. I thought, how can you talk to a sick alcoholic like that? <laughs> and don't you understand? We're sensitive. <laughs> and he literally saved my life. He motivated me to do the one thing I would never have done on my own volition. Yeah. I tried to cover the book. And I found me in there. And we got to Huntington Park that night and started down the steps into the Ebel Club. And this is another one I can't understand. Stepping down those steps going into the e-bell club, something happened. It seemed like something came all the way from my toes. And I think it was the first honest feeling in my life. And I tapped Joe on the shoulder. I said, Joe, i got to ask you something. And he turned around real gruff. You know, he is a crusty old bugger. He'd say, yeah, what do you want now? And I knew that second. I knew that second. I can't explain it. I knew deep down inside... He had all of me he could stand. He was sick and tired of my BS, and I knew it. And I looked him right in the eye and said, How long do I have to go to these damn meetings? <laughs> and this wise old man with the x-ray vision got fighting mad that fast took his index finger and shoved me into the corner outside the meeting hall so they wouldn't hear it inside. When he got me in the corner where I couldn't get away, he started to get violent. Yeah. He started to hit me in the chest like this and he started to scream. I mean, I can hear it yet today. He said, you idiot. He didn't like that. He said, you have to go to meetings until you want to go to meetings. Then you don't have to go to meetings anymore. <laughs> Didn't make much sense then, but it sure does now. But that night, because he hit me in the chest and screamed at me, I'll fix his clock. I might have to be in a meeting, but I'm not going to listen. <laughs> Couple here tonight doing that, you know? I don't know what you do when you're sitting in a meeting not wanting to be in a meeting, but I'll tell you what I was like. I was uptight like a spring. I'm saying to myself, this jerk, night after night, hauling me to these damn meetings, I'm going crazy. <laughs> and when you're in that frame of mind, you aren't about to hear anything. But they're smart, you know, these old timers. They set you here in the front row so you don't nod off, right? And then they're starting to say things like, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, that was a ringer. 
I looked this herd over and I thought to myself, I wouldn't have drank with half of these people. I mean, there's a couple here tonight I wouldn't drink with yet. Right, Keith? And so I had to do, I'm trapped like a trap rat, you know? He's got the keys, I know he won't give them to me. And I got to do something, I don't want to hear anything they got to say. So I had to do something, you know? So I started staring around the room counting light bulbs. Would I have had a blast in here? <laughs> and then I run out of light bulbs. I guess you wouldn't in here. And then I run out of light bulbs. And then I start winking at girls. And then, then I run out of girls. Then I spot this guy about halfway back and he's scribbling on a piece of paper. I didn't know you have to take notes here. And I watch him like a hawk. Halfway through to me, he gets up, walks out of the row, goes on down the side like that, and goes to the door, and split! Took that piece of paper, stuck it on the bulletin board, and split. I didn't know you could do that. And I'm an ex-cop, and I'm nosy by nature. And i got to find out what's on that piece of paper. And I sneak over there and get that piece of paper off the bulletin board, right? And I read it. Don't tell me there's no miracles. Because you know what was written on that piece of paper? It was a little poem about drums. And I read it. And it made sense. And when nobody was looking, I stole it. <laughs> Took it along home. And on the days when I was absolutely certain that I just can't make this thing. You know, it might be all right for you people, but I can't make it. And yet, I didn't want to go back out there in them damn cold cars and start drinking rot gut wine again and die like my buddy Pete. So I get it on my billfold, read it, save my can a million times. And I just can't tell you how happy I am to be here. And I want to thank Carol again. A little poem entitled Which Place? I dreamed one night I passed away and left this world behind. Started down that lonesome trail some of my friends to find. Came to a signboard on the trail, directions that they tell. Keep right to go to heaven, turn left to go to hell. I hadn't been too good on earth, just a hopeless, boozing way. I knew that at the crossroads, path I'd have to take. So I started on the rocky path that leads to Satan's place, and shook within not knowing just what I'd have to face. Old Satan met me at the gate, what's your name, my friend? I said, I'm just old sober sand that's come to a sad end. He glanced through some files. He made a mistake, I fear. You're listed as an alcoholic. We don't want you here. I said, I'm looking for my friends. And a smile came across his face. If your friends are alcoholic, they're in the other place. So I went back the other way to the crossroads I could see and turned right to heaven, as happy as could be. St. Peter smiled and said, come in. For you, I have a birth. You're an alcoholic. You've been through hell on earth. I saw old Dub and old Pete too, Bill C and a friend called Bell. And brother, I was tickled because I thought they'd gone to hell. So brothers, I'll take warning, learn something from my trip. You've got a place in heaven if you try hard not to slip. If someone tempts you with a drink when you're not feeling well, just tell him you're going to heaven and he can go to hell. Thank you. <laughs>